0: All right, as the, uh, as the kids make their way out, uh, I did want to remind you that this evening, uh, in fact, uh, every second Sunday of the month, we have what's called Second Sunday Prayer. And so we gather together uh, as a ch- church family uh, to spend time in prayer together. Uh, that's a very important time for us because many of you know you've heard me uh, quote John 15, four and five many times where Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, I actually heard a friend this past week, and I was in Atlanta, and he was commenting on that verse. And, and he said, you know, uh, I think that oftentimes when we hear Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing, what we are actually hearing him say is, apart from me, you can't do big things. Because in our day-to-day lives, what do we do? Usually we just go about our day-to-day lives without really praying, because I think intuitively we think we can get along without God just fine, and it's only when there's big problems or, or big things that come up in our lives where we begin to turn to God in prayer. But Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can't do big things, did he? He said, apart from me, you can't do anything, nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So we are desperately dependent upon him for everything, which is why we must pray. Everything that we are setting out to do as a church, to know Jesus, to make Jesus known in the community, to see the lost saved, to see us, our own lives become more Christ-like, we can't make any of that happen. We're completely dependent on the Lord for everything. So I want to encourage you to come. Fellowship with us tonight. It's at 5 o'clock, uh, and then we'll have a, it's a potluck meal, so we'll pray for about an hour or so, and then afterwards we'll eat together. It's at my house If you need directions, just come and ask me afterwards, and I'll give you the address. I hope that you'll join us for that. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to uh, jump into the book of Job, uh, and we're going to jump into week one of our series called God and Evil. Let me ask for the Lord's help. Lord, I pray right now that you'd help me in my weakness. I pray that you would help all of us in our weakness to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the humility to... to to listen to what your word says and to conform our lives to your word, God. May we have an encounter with you. May we not sit in judgment upon you and your word, but would your word shape and mold our lives, oh God. I pray that you would show each one of us, God, just how mighty you are, how glorious you are, how beautiful you are. So much better, so much greater than we could ever possibly imagine. And I pray that over the next few minutes, God, that we would leave this place being in awe of who you are, just like Job was after he encountered you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, December 26, 2004, there was an underwater earthquake in the Indian Ocean, and it triggered a tsunami that hit Indonesia and several other Nations and it took the lives of over 225,000 people. One of the greatest natural disasters in the history of the world. Over 1.7 million people were left homeless. Billions upon billions of dollars of damage. Lives and families utterly destroyed. And it was a massive news story that sparked widespread conversation about where God is in the face of such immense suffering. This catastrophe was, was so tremendous, it was so massive, that it caught the attention of the entire world, and people were forced to reckon with this question, where is God? One popular pastor and author at the time said in the following days, at a conference, that it was God's judgment on the region due to their persecution of Christians. The head of a Christian missions organization publicly disagreed and said in his statement that, quote, we do not agree that God was behind the deaths. Another Christian writer and philosopher wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, no Christian is licensed to utter blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. When it comes to suffering and evil, the world struggles to understand how it can coexist with a God who is both all-powerful and all-benevolent. Why are we doing a series, a six-week series, on God and evil and suffering? There's a few reasons. I want to give you three. The first reason is that my job as your pastor is to teach you and to build you up so that I can present you to the Lord, mature in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. I know that some of you are walking through suffering right now in your lives. And I also know that if you are not currently walking through suffering, you certainly will. In the days to come. The Apostle Paul told the church in the book of Acts, he said, It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And in America, we tend to assume the opposite. We assume that if we do the right things, and if we're pretty good Christians, then God will bless us. After all, look how prosperous we are in America, and aren't we a Christian nation? the trouble with this assumption is that when suffering does inevitably hit our lives, it completely shatters our world because it undermines our entire worldview. And I want you as the flock that I have been tasked with shepherding and overseeing, I want you to be steeled for the day of adversity that will come if it has not already so that your faith is not shaken, so that you can stand fast in the gospel even as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. My desire is that at the end of this six weeks, you would love God more, you would fear God more, that you would see that God is so much greater, so much more glorious, so much more worthy of your worship than you had ever begun to comprehend. That's one of the things we're going to see in Job. You see, Job knew God in Job chapter 1. But Job came to see and to know God in an intimate way by the end of his ordeal that he never had before after he had walked through his suffering. And my prayer is that the same will happen for every one of you. I also think it's important for us to spend six weeks walking through these questions because the justification of God's ways when it comes to the existence of evil and suffering is probably the number one objection from unbelievers or non-Christians when it comes to the Christian faith. And I want to help you think well about how to answer questions from non-believing friends and family because, unfortunately, because I think churches often shy away from tackling questions like this head on. Many Christians are left without answers to these questions and they will give well-meaning advice and answers that are, quite frankly, unbiblical and unhelpful at the end of the day. And I want you to have strong, solid answers for your friends and your family and your co-workers who are wrestling with these things. So I want to walk through this series with you guys so that you all are built up in the faith and so that we can be equipped to answer these questions. And I also know there's probably some in this room today and you would probably uh, not call yourself a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're even here this morning because you knew that we were about to enter into this series and you're asking these very questions. So my prayer for you is that the Lord will give you eyes to see and that you'll see how good God is and that God does have answers for these questions that are far better than you could have ever possibly imagined. Let me give you the roadmap uh, for where we're going. Uh, This morning, I'm going to preach a general overview of the message of the book of Job. So the book of Job is a story, and so I want to treat it like a story. I want to walk through the whole book and briefly draw out the major themes. So we're going to do kind of a 30,000-foot view of the book of Job this morning. And then over in the next five weeks, we're going to go back into the book of Job and we're going to take a deeper dive and we're going to look at it in different through different lenses or different angles, kind of like if you were to have a diamond under a microscope and you're going to turn it this way and that and you're seeing it from different perspectives. And so, for example, next week we'll look at the sovereignty of God in the book of Job. And the week after we'll look at the role of Satan in the book of Job. And then we'll look at Job's response to his suffering in week four. In week five, we'll look at the response of Job's friends. And then in week six, we'll look at the restoration of Job uh, and, and also ask questions along the lines of what is God doing? What is the purpose of suffering? How does God use it in the lives of believers? So that's where we're going over the next six weeks. And the main, the main theme or the, the, the thematic statement, the main point of the series is this. While we may suffer in ways that we don't understand, we can endure knowing that God sovereignly orchestrates suffering for His glory in our good. Let me say that again. While we may suffer in ways we don't understand, we can endure knowing that God sovereignly orchestrates suffering for His glory in our good. So let's pick up in Job chapter 1, if you have your Bible, You can turn there. Job's in the Old Testament. It's uh, just before Psalms. And we're going to start in verse 1 there. So in Job chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to Job. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, we don't know a lot about Job, but scholars believe that he probably lived in the time of the patriarchs somewhere in the east, maybe modern-day Pakistan, But what we do know about Job is that he was pious and prosperous. The first five verses clearly lay that out. Verse 1 goes on to say that that man, Job, was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And verse 5 goes on to explain that Job would offer sacrifices for his children just in case any of them had sinned. And it says, thus Job did continually. So Job was just a great guy. He walked little old ladies across the street. He kept up with his Bible reading plan. He volunteered at the local food bank. He limited his screen time. Job was just a good guy. He was a great Christian, right? And not only was Job a great guy, but he was very prosperous. In verse 3 we read that he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Wow! Now, Back in the day when wealth was measured by agriculture, Job had a lot of money. He was a wealthy man. He was blessed and highly favored, right? And the connection between Job's piety and prosperity, is intentional by the author. We expect that, don't we? We expect that if we are relatively good people, then God should give us good things. So, so far, so good. Things look like how they ought to be in Job's life. And that's what makes what happens next so jarring. It's the reason that the book of Job resonates with so many people. In the words of one commentator, Job was just living his life, and then all hell broke loose. Pick up with me in verse 6, and I'm going to read down to verse 19 of chapter 1. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing. "'and donkeys feeding beside them. "'And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them "'and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, "'and I alone have escaped to tell you.' "'While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, "'The fire of God fell from heaven "'and burned up the sheep and the servants "'and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you.' "'While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, "'The Chaldeans formed three groups.' So in verse 6, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And the sons of God were likely angels who appeared along with Satan to uh, come before God and to give an account of their activity on earth. And in the course of this exchange, the Lord pointed out to Satan that Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away From evil, It's as if the Lord was saying to Satan, "...Hey, look at Job. He's not giving in to your temptations. He's not giving in to your temptations. He continues to fear me and to turn away from evil." And in response, Satan scoffs. He says, "...Of course he fears you. That's because you're blessing him with all this good stuff. That's because you put a hedge of protection around him. Job only loves you for the gifts that you give him. He doesn't really love you, God." All you've got to do is just remove your hand of blessing from him, and he'll curse you to your face. Satan was calling into question the integrity of Job's worship, basically accusing Job of not really loving God. And he was calling into question God's worthiness to be worshipped above all things. And in response to Satan's challenge, the Lord granted Satan permission to afflict Job. But he placed limits on what Satan could do. He couldn't touch Job's body. And verses 13 to 19 describe this avalanche of suffering that descends upon Job's life. In just seven verses, Job loses everything but his health. Think about the worst day of your life. And then imagine five of those piled right on top of one another all in the same day. Job lost all of his wealth. All ten of his children were killed. I've never lost a child, but I've been told it's one of the worst kinds of pain that you could possibly bear. Job lost all ten of his children in a single day. Ten. It would be like having your house burned down your cars stolen, all of your retirement savings lost in a stock market crash, and all of your children dying, all in a single day. And it's important to remember that from Job's perspective, this came out of nowhere. He was not privy to the divine counsel happening in verses 6 to 12. He's not aware of this exchange that happened between the Lord and Satan. I wonder, how would you respond if you were in Job's shoes? How have you responded when you've been in Job's shoes? What Job does next is pretty remarkable. Look at verse 20 to 22. It says that, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. And this is remarkable. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Those three verses really mess with our common perception of who God is and how God is involved in suffering, don't they? Kind of throws a wrench into things. Job does two things that we don't often think of pairing together. He grieves and he worships. He tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground. He was completely shattered. But even amidst the fog of loss, Job worshiped. He remained steadfast in his belief that God is sovereign and good. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you grew up in church, perhaps you've heard the refrain, God is good all the time. And then the people say, all the time, God is good. It's easy to say that when all is well, isn't it? It's another story when you're suffering. Suffering really does prove whether or not you meant it, All those other times that you said it. At least in chapter 1, Job demonstrated that Satan was wrong. Job loved God more than his children or his possessions. But Satan wasn't done, and Job's ordeal was just beginning. In chapter 2, this entire cycle repeats itself. Once again, Satan appears before God to give an account of his activity. God pointed out to Satan, Job still continues to fear me and to turn away from evil, even after you afflicted him, even after all of this suffering. And once again, Satan scoffs. He says in verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. But Satan says, Yeah, of course he didn't, he, he's still serving you, God, because you wouldn't let me afflict his body last time. Let me take away his health, and he'll turn on you in an instant. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we read on in chapter two that he struck Job with loathsome sores. And these weren't just any sores. This was, uh, this was suffering like you and I have never, ever experienced. Later on in chapter seven, Job laments that his sores have worms in them. Job sat in ashes, and he scraped himself with broken pieces of pottery. This is a broken, sad, pathetic sight of a man who is defeated. And to top it all all off, his wife has had enough. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And this is just incredible. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, I think sometimes we can be a little bit hard on Job's wife. She had suffered tremendously too. She had lost everything. And I think we need to be patient with her. I can hear patience and grace even in Job's reply. You notice he doesn't call her foolish, does he? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. It's a gentle rebuke, but a rebuke nonetheless. Job, for his part, continued to remain steadfast in his trust in God. He acknowledged God's sovereignty and his goodness, and he did not charge God with wrong. Once again, Job revealed That he loved God more than everything, even his own life. So test passed, right? Except that if any of you have ever walked through grief before, you know that grief is a marathon and it's not a sprint. Oftentimes in the early days of grief, the Lord gives us a special outpouring of grace to be able to see us through those initial days. And it's almost like walking through a day's or walking through a fog, and oftentimes the most difficult days come in the weeks and in the months that follow, don't they? Have you been there? At the end of chapter 2, Job's three friends showed up. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they were so appalled at how great Job's suffering was that they sat in silence with him on the ground for seven days. Years ago, early on in my ministry, uh, I was a college ministry intern at a church in Brownwood, and I got a call one day from one of the pastors uh, asking if I could go to be with a family whose son had just drowned in Lake Brownwood. The pastor was unavailable, so I jumped in my car, uh, 24 years old, uh, and I walked into this house, uh, into a scene that you can never really prepare for. Hours earlier, This 17-year-old young man had been out on the lake with his friends celebrating their upcoming high school graduation that was about to take place in a week, and they had all uh, decided to to jump out and swim to shore in a race to see who could win. And at some point, something happened while he was swimming to shore, uh, and he began to struggle, and they couldn't get to him in time. And the 17-year-old young man drowned while his friends looked on um, and could not get to him to save him. And one of the things I remember most about that moment is how inadequate anything I could have possibly said sounded in my head. And so I I think by God's grace, uh, I, I didn't really know any better, but for the most part, I just sat there with them and I didn't say much. I prayed a little bit with them, but mostly I just sat. And when someone's grieving, one of the most helpful things you can do is refrain from giving advice or trying to fill the silence. Just sit. And Job's friends did that for a time. They should have stayed that way. But they didn't. In chapter 3, after seven days of silence, Job finally speaks. In chapter 3, Job laments the day of his birth, and he openly questioned the point of all of his suffering. He basically says, Why was I born in the first place if this is what I was born to experience? What's the point of it all? And at this point, his friends could no longer hold their peace. And chapters 4 through 31 are a series of three cycles of speeches between Job and his friends. And Job's friends were convinced that Job had done something to deserve his suffering. And they spent all of their time urging him... To repent. Now they meant well. Okay, they were trying to help. They really believed that Job had done something to deserve this, and if he would just repent, then every then everything would be okay again. That the Lord would restore his fortunes. But one of the things we come to see in Job's friends is that they had some good theology, but they applied it miserably. Their theology could be summed up in. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, where Eliphaz is speaking, and he says this to Job. He says, Remember, who was innocent that ever perished? Or who were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, hey, if you suffered, then you had it coming. Because if you just do the right thing, God's going to bless you. In their minds, since God is just, there's no way He would ever let somebody suffer unless they had done something to deserve it. Now, Job was incredulous, and he continued to maintain his innocence. And in his speeches, he pushed back against his friends, and he openly questioned God. He continued to believe that God was good and just, But that's why Job was so perplexed. Because you see, Job's struggle was that he was struggling how to reconcile what he was actually experiencing in his life with his convictions that God is good and that God is just and that God is sovereign. In Job's mind, he never doubted that. But he struggled to, if that's true, why am I going through what I'm going through? How does this fit? into a good and sovereign God's plan. That's Job's struggle. And that's probably many of your struggles this morning, isn't it? It's the struggle of the world. For example, in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, Job says this. He says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. God, what are you doing? Does it seem good to you to oppress To despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? For Job, it didn't make any sense. And yet, Job also had moments of admirable faith. Like chapter 13, verse 15. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Just as an aside, I love how accurate of a picture of grief that the book of Job provides. Is it not true that some days you can have tremendous hope and faith and the next day or even the next moment you can descend into despair, right? One moment Job displayed admirable faith, the next moment he wanted to die and he questioned everything. Now there's a lesson here. Be patient with people who are walking through suffering. Suffering people will often say things in their grief that they don't mean. And when we're counseling people walking through suffering, we ought not react, overreact, to things that are said in the midst of grief. And I think there's also another lesson here for those of you who perhaps have said things that you are ashamed of in your suffering. I just want you to hear me. um, And now I think this is coming from the heart of the Lord. I hope that the Holy Spirit will speak through me to you right now. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. God is not disgusted with you. He's not holding a grudge against you. He's holding out His arms. You know what's amazing? Is that Job, I mean, Job openly questions God. Right? Job, we just read it. Why are you contending against me? And yet at the end of all this, at the end of the book of Job, it's Job's friends who are rebuked. And Job's, and the Lord says of Job, it is Job who has spoken well of me. That's amazing. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God can handle your wrestlings and your questions and your grief. He's big enough. And He's patient and long-suffering and merciful. And He's not angry with you for the things that you've said in your grief. So you don't need to carry that shame, brother or sister. I love how Psalm 103, 13 and 14 describes the character of the Lord. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then listen here, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. Now finally, in Job chapter 31, he reached the peak of his frustration. Job basically demanded a hearing from God and accused God of mistreating him in chapter 31, and he challenged God to bring forth evidence of any wrongdoing on his part. And to this point, God has been completely silent, and Job wanted answers from God. Now, Job, Job never does sin, but he comes pretty close with his bold questions, <laughs> And at this point in chapter 31, Job's friends fall silent, and a young man named Elihu speaks up in chapters 32 to 37. And we don't have time to get into Elihu's speeches. We'll try to get to those later in the series. But it's in chapter 38 that God finally answers Job from out of the whirlwind. But God does not give Job the answer that he's looking for. In fact, God never actually answers Job's why questions. Look at verses 2 and 3, chapter 38. Let's pick up. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So after, after getting Job's attention... God began to ask Job a series of questions about how he created and sustains the universe. Pick up in verse 4. The Lord begins to pepper Job with questions. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God questioned Job on everything from where light comes from to how hawks fly. And the point is clear. Job cannot even understand how to make a bird fly, let alone cause the sun to come up. So how could he have the audacity to question God and His ways? And the Lord summarized His first address to Job in chapter 40, verse 2, when He says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job had no answer. In verse 4, he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. But the Lord wasn't done. In response to Job's accusation of wrongdoing, the Lord said in chapter 40, verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? God then questioned Job on whether he could tame Leviathan or Behemoth, two of the most feared beasts, in the ancient world, it's, it's a rhetorical question that he asked Job. The answer is no. We can't even tame these beasts. So if Job cannot even defeat these beasts that God leads around on a leash, he could not possibly contend with God. Now, is the Lord being harsh with Job here when he starts kind of bombarding him with all of these questions? No, I don't think so. I actually think he's being patient and gentle with Job. After all, the Lord has listened as Job has kind of arrogantly lobbed accusations at the Lord for about 37 chapters, and he's sat back and taken it. And then the Lord begins to, I think, pepper Job with these questions because he's slowly and deliberately overcoming his resistance and humbling him into submission. And finally, Job cries, uncle, and he waves the white flag and repents in chapter 42. Let me read you chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." What Job discovered is that he didn't need to know why, he needed to know who. When Job demanded an explanation from God, he got a revelation of God. Job discovered that God was even more glorious and powerful and wonderful than he had imagined, and he was humbled. In the remainder of chapter 42, God rebuked Job's three friends, but He also provided a means of atonement for them. That in itself is remarkable, and I hope to be able to return to it later on in this series. But it's striking to me that the Lord showed compassion and grace to these theologians who showed so little compassion towards Job. And even Job himself prayed for them and asked God, To forgive them. After forgiving Job's misguided friends, the Lord restored to Job all that he had lost. Look at verses 10 and 11. Chapter 42 it says And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before. And he ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Here's the kind of the overarching idea that I want, to, I want you to come away with this morning as we think about the big picture of what the book of Job is trying to teach us. When it comes to God's purposes in our suffering, there are some things we can know, and there's some things that we can't, okay? When it comes to God's purposes in our suffering, there are some things we can know, and there's some things that we can't. When you think about the way that the book of Job is structured, in chapters 1 and 2, there's these scenes in heaven, right, that are happening that Job is unaware of, that are behind his suffering, that Job doesn't know. In the same way, in chapter 42, there's a restoration that comes for Job that Job doesn't know is coming throughout this ordeal. Job couldn't see what was behind his suffering or what was beyond his suffering. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote that between chapter 2 and chapter 42, you have a bunch of men philosophizing in the dark. They're trying to figure out what's happening But they really don't understand because one of the points of the book of Job is to emphasize to us the limited nature of human wisdom wisdom to search out God's purposes and God's ways. When it comes to suffering, there are some things we can know and there are some things we can't. Now, what are the things that we can know in suffering? Well, we can know that a good and sovereign God is behind our suffering. The sovereignty of God over the evil that befalls Job in this book is undeniable. And the author of Job is unashamed to lay responsibility at God's feet. Did you see verse 11? I'm going to read verse 11 again, and we're going to dive into this much more next week. We're going to focus all next week on the sovereignty of God over suffering. But look at verse 11. Again, it says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him. And here it is, for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And we're going to have to reckon with that over the next six weeks. We can't just take that and go, Well, that surely doesn't mean what it plainly says it means. No, it does. It means that. And it's okay to 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 look at that and go, well, I don't get it. That's okay, and we're going to wrestle with it together. But what we can't do is we can't just go. We're just going to throw that in a closet and lock it away and pretend it's not there. And we'll just and we'll shape a different God in our own image, who's not completely sovereign over evil and suffering, because that's a safer God. And I don't want to deal with the God of the Bible, that's described in Job forty-two verse eleven. We're actually doing ourselves a tremendous disservice. We're going to get to it a lot next week, but let me just leave you with one thing this morning. Just consider the alternative. If God were not totally sovereign over evil, if God merely reacts to evil, then that means that evil runs rampant in the world, largely unchecked. And I don't know about you, but that thought terrifies me. A world in which evil is not controlled by God is a frightening world indeed. In reality, it ought to be a great comfort to us that God is totally in control of evil. And even though we do not understand all of God's good purposes, He does have good purposes, even in the evil that He ordains and permits. Job also affirms God's goodness in all circumstances, not just God's sovereignty. After each round of suffering, it says that in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips or charge God with wrong. He remained steadfast in his conviction that God is good. One of the reasons that people struggle to believe that God is good when they suffer is because even though we probably wouldn't say it this way, deep down, we believe that God owes us good things because I'm a pretty good person. Most people believe they're a pretty good person, at least better than their neighbor. Maybe not perfect, but I'm better than Susan over here. And so God, doesn't, God owes me pretty good things, right? Maybe not riches, maybe not perfect health, but certainly I don't deserve suffering like Joe. But the reality is that if God should only give us what we're owed, then God should only give us death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, wages is what you have earned, the wages of sin is death. But in His goodness and mercy, God continues to bless us with good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust I love Psalm 145, 9. It says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And I want you to understand this morning, brothers and sisters, that that is just as true in the aftermath of a tsunami that wipes out 200,000 people as it is at the birth of a newborn baby. Just as true, just as true. Every breath, every meal, every night of sleep is a gift of God's grace. You know, the second half of that verse, Romans 6.23, that says, the wages of sin is death, says this. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the greatest evidence of the goodness of God is found at the cross of Christ. The reason that we can know that God is good, even with all of the evil and the suffering in the world, is because we can look to the cross of Christ, where the perfect, spotless Son of God hung there for you in your place to die for your sins. So that you could be forgiven of your sin and receive the free gift of eternal life, even though you and me deserve death and condemnation. Brothers and sisters, do you realize what we deserve is worse than what Job got? We shouldn't be shocked that God has mercy on some. We should be shocked that God has mercy on anyone. The cross of Christ is the clearest demonstration of the goodness of God that you'll ever see, no matter what else is going on in the world. When the 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 wind and the waves of your life are tossing you about to and fro, you can look to the cross of Christ and know that God is good. And not only that, but you can look to the empty tomb and know that He's defeated death, and He's defeated evil, and He's alive. You see, because it's not just that a good and sovereign God is behind our suffering. We also know what lies beyond our suffering. Job didn't have that benefit. Job didn't know that a restoration is coming. We do. We have an empty tomb. We know what our future holds. As the song that we sing sometimes goes, I know how the story ends. Don't we? Christ Jesus has defeated death. He's risen from the dead. We're here this morning because the tomb is empty. And that changes everything. So does cancer or tsunamis or stock market crashes or chronic back pain or abuse or even death have the last word? No. What does Romans 8.37 says? It says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Have you ever thought about that's what that verse means? In this world you will have many tribulations, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Oh, brothers and sisters, I plead along with Paul. I've been pleading with the Lord as we've been preparing this series that He would open your eyes to behold The hope to which He has called you and the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints so that you would see that there's a good and a sovereign God behind your suffering and that there is a complete restoration beyond your suffering. That's what enables Christians to be able to rejoice in our trials, like James chapter 1 says. Does this mean that we can know everything that God is doing in our suffering? No. There's a lot we can know, and we're going to walk through that in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about some of the specific things that we can know, some of the good things that God is doing in our suffering. I'm excited to walk through that with you. But John Piper said once, he said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. God is just far more transcendent and wise than we could ever imagine. And most of what God's doing, we're never going to uncover or discover because He's God and we're not. And if we could figure God out, then He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. This is one of the most important lessons in the book of Job. God does not owe us an explanation. He is God and we are not. And that's where faith comes in. That's why, in response to Job's demand for answers, God answered Job with a barrage of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? The questions were intended to drive home a point. Job, church member, I am God and you are not. I run the entire universe. Trust me. Trust me. Now, I'm going to ask David to come up as we get ready to close. And perhaps like Job, you've been demanding an explanation from God. Maybe you're even bitter towards Him. Maybe in your heart you've accused Him of wrongdoing. Friend, an explanation is not what you need. What you need is Him. You need to see that He is sovereign and good and you can trust Him in the dark. I urge you this morning, like Job, to put your hand over your mouth and worship Him. The good news is that God is more than willing to be gracious to you. Because Christ died for our sin, we know that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One practical way to repent of bitterness toward God this morning is to take the time this week to write down the many good things that God has given you, even though you don't deserve any of them. God has given me so many good things in my life I don't deserve, guys. It's just, I'm, I'm stunned when I step back and think about how God, good God has been to me. I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve any of it. So write down the many things that God has given you that you don't deserve. And then take some time to write down all of the blessings that He's promised you in the new heavens and the new earth. And then take time to pray over those lists and praise God. Take time to praise Him. Ask Him to forgive you and to help you trust Him. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation. And maybe the existence of evil in the world is the very thing that's been keeping you from trusting Him for your salvation. I want to invite you this morning to open your eyes to a God that is so much greater, so much more glorious, so much more gracious than you could have ever possibly imagined. You can trust Him. He has demonstrated His love for you and His goodness at the cross of Christ. No, we're never going to understand all of His ways and everything that He's doing, but we can understand His character and we can trust His promises. I want to invite you Just take that first step of faith this morning in placing your trust in him. If you'd like to do that, I just want you to come and find me after the service. And I'd love to pray with you and I'd love to help you take next steps in following Jesus. I'm gonna ask David uh, to play and we're gonna sing um, a song this morning called Lord from Sorrows, Deep Black Hall. And it's it's a lament and it's a cry out to uh, the Lord, but it's also a song of hope. Uh, We're declaring that even in the midst of our sorrows, we have a sure and we have a steady hope. And so let's sing this loudly together as a church family. And if you need to pray with somebody, uh, there's going to be a couple of our pastors in the back who are going to be back there who would love to pray with you. So while we're singing, you can just uh, head back there. uh, And Pastor Keith or Pastor Andrew would love to pray with you. Okay, All right. let's stand together.